Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you attend to us as we sing, as we worship you, as we love you, as we follow you. We ask, Almighty God, that you would be with us as we look to your word this morning, as we desire to know your will for our lives in all of these different areas and all of these different aspects of what biblical reformation would do in impacting fathers and sons and daughters and wives and masters and slaves and the church and worship and all of these things. Help us, Lord, to think about how invaluable time is. We ask that you would bless the preaching of the word, that you would give unction in that, and that you would bless the hearing of the word, that you would give clarity to that. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us in this time as we look to your word for guidance in these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 15 and 16. We've previously looked at the latter half of Ephesians chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. But we have to back up. Paul's thought and everything else that we've looked at in terms of fathers and sons and daughters and wives and husbands and masters and slaves and the church rests on some basic principles, one of which is exceedingly important in reference to true biblical reformation because without doing what Paul says here in verses 15 and 16, it is impossible that true biblical reformation would be helpful to us because we might know the truth of it without putting it into practice in the right way. So, let's simply read these two verses, which is one short sentence. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. May the Lord bless his word to our heart and mind as we look at these particular phrases that set us up for redeeming the time. In dealing with biblical reformation and what that really is, we've covered the reality of true reformation, and we've covered various stations in life where reformation needs to take place, but we have to remember that knowledge itself is never enough. It's not enough just to know things about what biblical reformation should be or how we should implement it. It actually has to be practically worked out. And if we don't practically work it out, then true biblical reformation can never take place because it would be only in theory and not in practice. The Christian must take advantage of the time that God gives him to engage in true biblical reformation or the principle of reformation will be meaningless. That is why covenanting, when we first talked about that, is so important. It's not enough just to know what to do, but we actually solemnly engage in a covenant to do that, and thus we're held accountable before God, and it presses the Christian to act based on a solemn vow. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, just to remind you in chapter 22 and verse 3, whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. So he should be held accountable to be able to do that. Christians can agree that Reformation is good. Reformed Christians often agree that Reformation is good and necessary, and right, and doctrinally sound. But, unless they are taking advantage of the time God gives them to enact it, then it's just a theory. And it has to be more than that. So, in saying that, let's look at these two verses, 15 and 16, with especially the phrase, redeeming the time in 16, the specifics, as we've talked about so far, are set in the covenant community, and Paul is here in the beginning, even before he gets into the church, talking about some of the basic principles that set straight everything that's going to happen for church edification. 
the specifics of submitting to one another is set after the command to redeem the tongue. So he gives them a basic principle first, and then afterwards he gives them some specifics to follow. Regardless of what station you are in the family or in the covenant community, whether you're the janitor in the church or uh, the pastor of the church or in a men's group, or it doesn't matter. Whatever station you are, all of these things apply. And it not only applies to those stations, but in the manner in which those stations are exercised. The very things that they do, this principle is set over everyone for all time. So, in this particular sermon, it doesn't really matter if you're not a husband or you're not a wife, even though it's good to know those things, or you're not maybe a master or a slave or an employer or an employee, but this is something for everyone. This particular sermon applies to everyone in every station and everything that they do, as they call themselves Christian, and it excludes no one. And Ephesians itself is kind of an interesting book. It is... Um, it's a house built out of theological bricks that really sets forth a theology of walking. If you read through the book, Paul continually talks about walking. He says in Ephesians 2.10, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those are good works. And he says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. In Ephesians 4.17, he says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. In Ephesians 5.2, he says, And walk in love. In Ephesians 5.8, he says, For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in our verse, in 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So he gives us a theology of walking. He says, see then. See then you do this. See then you do it in this particular way. And the particular word that he uses is, this is a, a chief point. This is an important cardinal matter that you should pay attention to. Remembering the pagan ways you were in, renounce those and walk in a different way. Walking in futility is a waste of time. All that he had just named in the previous verses, as a result, he says, do the following. See that you do this, and you don't do as what the pagans do. You have to act like Christians, and you have to walk a certain way, circumspectly. Now, walking is not running. It's not like thinking about a young child who hears the lunchroom bell at school and runs to the lunchroom because it's his favorite class of the day going to lunch. And they're all excited. I remember doing that. We loved to go to lunch, wanted to get there really quick and uh, be first in line. But he doesn't want them to run. He, in other places, says that we should run the race in a certain way. But in this particular verse, he says that we should walk circumspectly. And walking is linked to that word circumspectly because that word is very important. It means diligence and care not simply with speed. It's not just that he wants you to run really quickly or go through the Christian life very quickly. Rather, he wants you to go through the Christian life very carefully and with care. Running from sin, the flesh, and the devil, that's fine, but they have to be careful about the way that they walk, and really the idea sets the sight as if a hunter was in the woods Hunting his prey. If a deer hunter went out in the woods and started running around and tromping through the forest, he would never catch any deer. He has to be careful. He has to wait. They even have deer stands where you go up and you sit for long periods of time waiting for the deer to come by with diligence, but with care. And so they are to walk, not with speed, but with care. And they're supposed to do it circumspectly, which means exactly, or accurately, or with precision. So they're supposed to walk in a certain way, as if a tightrope walker was going to walk on the tightrope. 
He wouldn't run across it. The worse and more corrupt that the ways of this world become, the more watchful Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to be in every situation. And so they should give regard to nothing but God's will. And they should be careful to follow it according to the scriptures. So they're to use precision to complete the task. And in this particular case, the task is the entire Christian life. But he doesn't tell them how yet. He just uses a description of those which walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Wisdom, as we know, is the right application of knowledge. So you have knowledge about something and you apply it rightly, that makes you wise. Not just to have knowledge, but to use it in a proper and godly way. That, that's why we go to wise people and we talk to wise people. So, walking is an action, something that he wants them to do, but he also wants them to do it rightly. Now he's going to tell them how they're to do it. And so he says, redeeming the time. To walk in a way of wisdom means to redeem the time. And it's climactic in this particular letter because this last part here, this last walking circumspectly, is the last time that he mentions walking. So it's climactic in that way. And it's, the tense is imperfect, which means that he never wants you to stop doing it. He not only wants you to redeem the time and know that you must redeem the time, but he wants you to do it in such a way that you continue to do it. The action begins and then continues for all time. It's a command to walk and a command to walk in a certain manner. Literally, redeeming the time means to buy up the time. That's what the Greek phrase means. And it, it has connotations of being used in the marketplace. The keen eye that somebody has for business. When you go to the mall, when you go to the store, or you go wherever it is that you want to buy something, you're always looking for the best deal. So your eye is out not to waste money, but to spend money wisely. And so this is the phrase that's used. Getting a good deal in shopping. That's the idea. So the Ephesian Christians are to see time as invaluable, seizing each opportunity to the glory of God. Well, we might have to ask, what is time? I mean, what is that? He's telling us to redeem the time. What is time? Some people have defined it as an instant or single occasion for some event. When something happens, that's an instant or single occasion for some event. Time is a half dimension. It's not a full dimension. It's a half dimension because it only moves in one direction forward. It just keeps going. The Lord started it when he created time, and it continues from moment to moment. It doesn't go backwards. It doesn't go sideways. It only goes forward. So, anything that is a definable moment is an event. You might walk to the store, and that might take a certain amount of Time, moments by moments to get there. Like a birth, when you have a baby, is a series of moments that could take, say, for instance, 36 hours for someone to deliver a baby. Or somebody could sneeze. And that particular set of moments is rather short. might only be a half of a second, but it's still made up of moments. There are certain things that happen in that event of sneezing. In this particular description, for the Ephesians, it's an, an, an event that's made up of moments that define that event. Time is just not this abstract idea. It's a particular thing. Maybe you're going to the store, and so Paul says that you should redeem the time while you're there. Make the most of it. Or you're going to church. That could be an hour or two hours. Redeeming that time is very important. Or maybe it's prayer. You're just praying a short prayer. You want to redeem the time in that set of moments. But that's the idea behind time in this particular passage. A set of moments that make up a particular event. Reading the Bible might take a person an hour and it might take another person 30 minutes. But both of those things are to be redeemed 
for the good of the Christian. Why must they redeem the time? Paul gives them a little quip as to why that is. Because the days are evil. And the word evil here is used in an ethical sense. Evil, wicked, bad, morally bad. So these redeemed men, once being godless and wicked, know the days are evil because they have been partakers of those days. And so Paul now tells them that there's to walk in wisdom, circumspectly with care and diligence, being wise because the days are evil. You know how it was, as he's already told them in Ephesians chapter 2, that they were once children of wrath. They know what it means to partake of evil deeds. They have to have a different viewpoint than that of the pagan. They have to be wise, not fools. They have to walk circumspectly, not running into sin. They have to be careful, not wasteful with their time. And so they have to take back time, so to speak, and rescue it from foolish use. Time, moments, events can be used foolishly. And so, upon time, we should set a very high value and be exceedingly careful that it is never lost or never squandered. And we're therefore exhorted to exercise wisdom in walking circumspectly with diligence in everything that we do so that we can redeem it and that it appears time is very invaluable to the Christian. Or, rather, it should be very invaluable to the Christian. This is what Paul is saying in these verses. Now, in terms of the doctrine that we're going to pull out, it's rather easy. It's more of an exhortation than an explanation. But God commands that Christians ought always to see time as invaluable. They must be thinking along those lines that time is precious and invaluable and they don't want to squander it, it has to be realized that every moment a Christian spends on earth is invaluable time. So you want to use it wisely. We should value what God values. And God values time. Genesis 4.3 says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering the fruit of the ground, but before the Lord. At a certain time, worship took place. Numbers 9.2, it says, Let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. A specific time to, to utilize the sacrament of Passover for the Israelites. Ecclesiastes 3.1, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. God is very particular about time. Even in sending the Messiah, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Even from the eternal decree, he sets special consideration when to do things. God looks at time and sees time as invaluable. And all through the Bible, God opens divine revelation in a particular and most careful manner. He doesn't just throw everything down in one big, huge swoop. Rather, he reveals things and demonstrates his will at certain times all through biblical history. The right time he brought Abram out of his father's house. At the right time, he will give rest to Jerusalem under the reign of David. At the right time, he will send the army to judge Israel's sin. He's very particular about time. It is in time, in that sphere of time, that every Christian lives and moves and has their being in God, in Christ. Invaluable to live acceptably with God is the Christian's aim, because time, in and of itself, is a gift of God. In studying very extensively on the doctrine of common grace, as so stated in theology, Jonathan Edwards came to the conclusion that common grace was simply opportunity. The opportunity 
that God gave, the specific moment or the specific event that gave opportunity to a sinner to receive the gospel. That's really what it came down to for Edwards in thinking about what common grace or basic grace was or common goodness to men was. Opportunity to receive the gospel. God is never obliged to give people any more time than they have now. God gives everybody one life, and you don't know how long or short that life is going to be. But everybody has one, and they've been given the gift of that life, which is what? A series of moments tied together with a series of events that make up their time. And that time is a gift. And God knows that there is a time to be born, and a time to die. He has set those standards over us, as Ecclesiastes 3.2 says. Rare commodities cost much because they're seen as precious, and oftentimes scarce. So is time. You only get one life, so we should see time as invaluable. So every breath that we take is a gift that God gives us. And the Christian has to treat it as such. It's a gift of God. Anything given to a Christian by God should be seen as invaluable, and time should be one of those. A limited gift needful of being wisely used. It's not exhaustive. We don't have as much as we want. The word itself has an emphasis of limitation. Not like those who think they have all the time in the world to be saved. You've heard people say that before. When you witness to them, oh, after I do such and such, then I'll think about God and being saved, or uh, I'll have time later in life, they'd have no idea. God has set the boundaries of time for every person, and for Christians, time should be seen as invaluable, especially under the idea that we desire true biblical reformation to take place in every area of our life. We should then be taking up time in a way in which we see it as precious. A second thought Christians should always engage in what I'm going to call time redemption. Redeeming the time. Time redemption. God redeems the time. He uses time wisely. He uses time perfectly. So should every Christian. From the beginning, God sets six days to work and one day to rest. He knows what is right. God takes special consideration of the time he spends and the work he has to do. And yet we are to be imitators of God, according to Ephesians 5.1. And Christians, as imitators of God, are always to redeem the time or be in this act of time redemption. It's impossible to read through the life of Christ and not see every act, every moment, every word of Christ as a model of time redemption. He did everything that he did with a purpose. The worldling says, I have all the time in the world. The Christian ought never to find a second of time when time is not redeemed for his purpose and for God's glory. It's continual. And they're the only ones who can do it. Because they're the only ones who have the regenerating power of the Spirit in them. The effects of the Spirit shining upon their mind and heart, or as we would call it, the supernatural and divine light, or the beam of divine glory that has shone upon the mind of the Christian, it gives him the ability to look at the divine commands that we have in the Scriptures. And so we should be desiring holiness and have a desire to please God. And we are the ones that are able to do that because we have the Spirit working in and through us. So every moment that we have is precious. Knowing that God has a plan for us, we always should, we should ought always to redeem the time because the days are evil. And the evil days want to pull us away from time redemption. They want us to run into dissipation and all sorts of wickedness. Even now, the days are wicked, just as in the days of Paul, and even more so now. It's not that there is nothing, anything new under the sun that people are doing today that they didn't do at that time, but with the ability of the media and the communication devices that we have, it's easier to disseminate information and disseminate wickedness and to pull sin as with a cart and rope before the entire planet in a single instance. And so we just have a wider influence of things that we have to deal with today, but there's nothing different. 
There was adultery in Paul's day. There's adultery today. There was murder in those days. There's murder today. Whether you hit somebody over the head with a stick and kill them or you shoot them with the newfangled gun, it's still murder. There's nothing new. But the Christian, who is wise, knows that they should be redeeming the time because the days are evil and the days desire to pull him away. Each day that comes up filled with its wickedness and its evil wants to pull the Christian away from God and it's the foolish man who says, times aren't so bad. Paul says that the days are evil. Time, which may never come again, because the wicked generation consumes it, is like a black hole that they fall into, and they're sucked into, and just continue to walk uncircumspectly, and walk just as the days so dictate as evil. But Christians should always redeem that time, and always should be looking to walk in the opposite direction of the day. Time redemption can never be from the past, but has to always be in the now. It would be very nice to be able to redeem past mistakes, but we can't do that. Once time is lost, time is gone forever. The moments, just a few moments ago, are gone. And we can't ever get them back. It's not like the ball game when the team is down three points and in the last inning and the heavy hitter is coming up to bat and you might be able to hit a grand slam and make everything right again. It doesn't work that way. Christians must be walking circumspectly. They must be currently wise in order that time is not wasted or squandered because they can never go back and they can't ever redeem it. They have to redeem it in the now. They have to make use of it now. They have to walk diligently and carefully now to make the time used in the best possible manner. It's like when children neglect their parents in such a way as to mind their own privacy. Then one day they wake up and they find out that they're 50 or 60 and their parents are dead and they should have spent more time with them. The time is gone and there's nothing they can do now. They cannot redeem it. Time redemption can never be from the past. It always has to be in the now. And we have to remember that there are eternal consequences in redeeming time. How good or bad we use it. Rewards and punishments for time redeemers and time wasters in the last day will come up when Christ judges all of our works. Ecclesiastes 3.17 says, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's a time there for every purpose and for every work. Everything we do, everything, will be judged by God. Every idle word we speak or think, every wasted moment that we've had, will be judged for our good or our ill. God is our ultimate sovereign. We should be thinking about how we use our time. First Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Same idea as Paul saying, that you're to walk in a certain way, wisely, because God the Father will ultimately judge all of our works. So we should see time as invaluable, we should be walking wisely. We should be redeeming the time now. And we should remember that every work we do will be judged. Every action, every thought, every word. So we ask ourselves, or we apply this text to us by asking, simply, do we believe that time is invaluable? Do we believe that time is precious? What kind of price you put on your time. That's why people who go through lots of schooling and become lawyers and doctors and, and psychologists and uh, financial planners and these people who, who see their time as invaluable charge so much for their time and they are paid so much for it because that's what they see as the rare commodity for them is their time. How important do you see your use of God's gift of time. 
We shouldn't waste any time, no time, not at all. Because we have to remember that all of it is God's time. We're on God's time clock. It's not our time. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, all of your moments that make up all of your events are owned by God. So, it's interesting that God gives us stewardship over that time, but we have to see it as invaluable. And we have to see it as something that is precious. And if now we're bought with a price and have to honor God with our body, then everything we do is important in whether or not we're wasting time or whether or not we're redeeming time. And God calls us either wise or fools as a result. The Holy Spirit says fools or wise. So we ask, do you practice time redemption with God's time? You know, God hasn't given us a time machine that we can go back in time and fix all the errors that we did. Wouldn't it be nice to reenact lost time or fix things or start over? But time goes by without our consent and without our permission and we can't get it back after it's gone. We can't redeem lost time, but the effects continue until there's an effect that's ultimately built up and that we have to remedy those things. Maybe it is that you don't read your Bible every day and over a period of time, say years, you get used to not doing that until less and less and less until the time when you're not doing it at all. But see, even though you've lost all of that time, it can be remedied. You can remedy that time. You can have good devotions with Christ now if you haven't had them before. You can have a mortification factor that happens with your sin now, even though you may have been in an engrossing sin that's been escalating. You can redeem it now, even though you've let time pass. The thought, the principle of wickedness attempts to pull us away from righteousness. We should be redeeming our time well with godly intention, seeing time as invaluable in everything that we do. Otherwise, reformation about our life and about our devotions and about our family and about our work will never happen. It'll just pass by. And we'll be 85 years old one day and we'll say, my oh my, time has passed so quickly. And everybody is privy to that. Everybody in, in every age that they're at, if they're you know, 50 or 40 or 30, they still say, man, I'm 30. Fifteen years ago, I was in high school, just beginning, and now I'm 30 years old. Passing by, time is flying by. Or people will say at the end of the day, this day flew by. Time goes by without our consent. And there are eternal consequences to whether or not we use time well or we don't. And we must be exhorted to do it. Christ never squandered his time. We should never. He was a, a man with a mission in everything that he did. For the Son of Man had come to seek and save that which was lost. Luke 19.10, he knows why he's here. Mark 10.45, which is the central and crux verse of the entire Gospel of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ knew exactly what he was about to do. Christ knew what his time was table was when he said to his mother my time hasn't come yet I know what I'm supposed to do things I know what I'm not supposed to do things he knew exactly what he was to do and from a certain time to a certain time when it was done he said so it is finished in John 1930 he knew that his work was done and in the covenant of redemption being fulfilled and the covenant of grace being placed upon his people and the Spirit of God being poured out from the Messiah who is now sitting at the right hand of God, Jesus knows everything in relationship to his purpose and his time, and we should as well. We have to make a decision as to whether or not we're going to be time redeemers or time wasters. We should actually look back and take a little survey as to what we've done as one or the other. Someone might say, 
you have to kind of be kidding because you, what you're telling us is that we have to be conscious about every point of time, every day, all the time. Well, is that not what the scriptures say? First Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you have to be conscious of glorifying God in everything that you do, in every moment. How many scriptures are there for idleness and slothfulness and laziness? As a matter of fact, we are so sometimes lazy, slothful, and idle, and not redeeming the time, that God, that the Holy Spirit, commands us to go look at the insects, to go look at the ant, to make good use of our time. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest? How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Even the ants are more productive. The way of the lazy man is like a hedge of thorns, but the way of the upright is a highway. Proverbs 15:19 says. It would be a little different, I guess, if Christians could just see what's on the other side of the hill. As a result of doing this, what blessings will I get out of it? That probably would make it a little bit easier for us to see how valuable time is. But we have to remember that for the believer, time is set aside of God. Times of growth, times of blessing. He has certain springs and fountains of blessing that he gives us all through our life and he gives us specific tasks that we're to do. He set up good works that we should walk in them. We have to have our eyes open trying to see what it is that God has for us each and every day. And we're not talking about, you know, what should I be when I grow up? We're talking about things like prayer and church and scripture reading and evangelism and witnessing, and all of the things that, as Christians, what we do in trying to enact reformation, we should remember that we know what the blessings are going to be over the hill. God will bless us abundantly in doing these things. And even those things that we can't see over the hill, he'll still bless us. He's ready to pour out blessing as a result of redeeming the time. Unbelievers try to take God's time and make it their own. That's what they do with it. They deliberately squander it because they think it's theirs to do with what they please. If they don't redeem the time, they agree with the evil of the day and they don't walk circumspectly and they don't care and they don't follow the commands of God. That's a fool. That's not walking as one who is wise. All the duties we've talked about over the past ten weeks concerning biblical reformation are only going to be taken seriously if we redeem the time for Christ and his kingdom. We're expanding his kingdom when we do those things. Every opportunity to make the most of our time is taking. What we're doing is we're buying up the time. Like a crazy stockbroker who's going out buying up all of these different stocks because he knows by some secret information, we'll say, that every single one that he buys is going to yield a thousandfold. And so he, he buys them up. So the Christian is to buy up the time. And how to redeem the time begins with redeeming the time through self-examination. You want to know how practically to go about doing it. The first thing that you should do is examine yourself. We know that we should do it. But we first have to see what we've been doing before we can correct what we should be doing. Redeeming the time does not simply mean you use your time in a right way, though that's part of it, but it is buying up the opportunity. It's having that keen eye to everything that you are doing and having a particular purpose to make sure that everything is done with the question, how might I please Christ my Lord in this opportunity or in that? opportunity. So, you're evaluating every situation. You're making the most of it. Non-Christians view this life very differently, where a man makes the most of his life for himself. He settles down, he gets a good job, he makes wealth, he eats, drinks, and he's merry, because tomorrow he's going to die. The Christian, he must be different. Satan even redeems the time. Did you know that? Satan is somebody who redeems 
the time for his own purposes. Luke 4.13 says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Paul knows that the devil works that way. That's why in chapter 6, he's going to lay out heavenly battles and spiritual warfare and the armor of God. We have to ponder the opportunities that we've lost or that we've gained to improve on them or to redeem them. Think about it this way. If God told you you only had three days left to live, how would you spend your days? What would you do? How would you make the most of that time? You would suddenly be moved to say, I only have three days left to live on the earth. What do I have to accomplish to be sure that everything is set in its proper place? So, God, in these verses in 15 and 16, are telling us that's how we should be acting every day, all of the time, with these spiritual things, knowing that one day we'll be judged for all of them. Let us remember and think through and ponder biblical reformation in light of the preciousness and invaluable nature that God has given us in the gift of time and redeem it as we should with everything. As a good husband, as a good wife, as a good employer, as a good employee, as a good Christian, as any station that God has given us that Reformation should take place in. Might we redeem the time because we know the days are evil. Let us walk circumspectly. Let us be diligent. Let us glorify God in our bodies which are His and find time as most precious. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that You've exhorted us to not only take the knowledge that we have and store it up in our mind and in our hearts, which we'll talk about in the week coming, but also, Lord, that you would help us to redeem the time that we have, that we would place it in action, that we would follow through with redeeming it in a way that's glorifying to you, that we would be careful about how we use time, that we would redeem it in a way that every moment we live as though we only have a short time left. Because we certainly don't know the amount of time that we have left. We don't know if you're going to require our life in an hour, in a day, in a week, in a year. We don't know that. Help us, Lord, in every situation that we're in. Whether we're eating, whether we're attending our children, whether we're spending time with our husband or wife, whether we're at work, whether we're in prayer or in reading the scriptures or at church or wherever we are, that we would evaluate the situation in such a way that we would do it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and that we would redeem that time for your glory always. And we so pray these things and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit in them. In Christ's name, amen. Capitalism in, in, in some of the largest and most amazing ways in reforming the work environment because of what the gospel teaches about being fair employers and employees. Honest business all around. Maybe we have a scornful master. Maybe we have a bad employer. But sovereignty doesn't discriminate because it's sovereignty alone that we're supposed to be working under. God has placed that employer over us. So it doesn't matter if we're working for Scrooge or not. We should be revolutionizing the workplace with our reformed mindset of what the scriptures speak concerning masters and slaves. And one can never forget that the way they treat their employers is how God will ultimately recompense them in this life and the life to come. How you treat your employer, you will be rewarded for now and later. Rewards for godly service. He will move employers to respect their employees by working well before your master. Just as he moved um, Assurus to recompense the faithfulness of Mordecai. Remember when the king gave him, uh, remember Haman led him through on the donkey, on the king's donkey, because he had done good for the king? It moved the king to do something good for Mordecai. If masters fail in these things, 
he will move strangers to recompense them. Even he moved the jailer to favor Joseph when his master had cast him into prison. And Pharaoh advanced him over Potiphar as a result. So even though Potiphar treated Joseph wrongly, he was blessed in the end. Sometimes God will draw the hearts of their employers more to them. God will make things which they labor in to prosper. He did this with Joseph. He did this with Abraham's servant. In dealing for themselves, he'll bless their work as he blessed Jacob's work. He will, when they come to have servants of their own or employees of their own, provide servants for them as they were to their masters. In Egypt, God blessed Joseph with a faithful servant. David who ventured his life to save his father's sheep, had many servants that ventured their lives for him. God will bless. And to, to the end of all of these kinds of blessings that God will give us is that great passage we've already read. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. We have to be thinking that way. Employees should be rendering their due as to Christ. Employers got to ask how good you are as well. You can work for yourself. You can work with many people under you. God is very strict with employers. He says in Luke 16:2. so he called and said to him, what does this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. If you're a bad steward over the people that God has given you, you will be called into an account of that. If you're after the buck and you're not out for their good, you will be called into an account for that. Employers should be intimately aware of everything that goes on with their employees. Because Paul here is having house servants first in view. Members of the family. It's their stewardship. Stewardship on behalf of God implies knowledge on behalf of those people. They should be good stewards of them. And employers are bound to supply the temporary necessity of those employees as well as their future necessity. Did you know that? The whole idea of the 401k and that kind of thing, those are biblical ideas. Not only are employers to pay the current wages, but they are to plan for the employee's future because of the providential nature that God has given them. Deuteronomy 24:15. Each day you shall give him as his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor, and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be a sin to you. So if the employer doesn't pay him his due wages, it's a sin. And then, what about when Jacob says, when shall I provide for my own house? He said that to his master. His master was to provide for the future of Jacob's house. It's the master's duty. So the master has to say, or the employer has to say, am I too hard? Maybe I'm too soft. Maybe I let my employees be too lazy. Am I negligent? Am I ignorant? Am I too stingy? They have to remember that the laborer is worthy of his wages and treat them as such. They should be thinking that way. Throw out the American dream and pick up the biblical ideas of these passages. So the universal precept, the universal labor precept that we have from Paul, is expounded by Jesus, it's expounded in the Old Testament, it's expounded in the New Testament. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That applies to slaves, that applies to masters. There's no excuse, one or the other. We have to reform the way we think about work and what God's intention is in putting us to work and creating us to work so that we can work rightly. In sincerity of heart, how? As to Christ. Let us be reminded of what he says in this passage as an employer and employees and may we affect our work environment for reformation. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that your Holy Spirit ministers to us through the Word of God. And pray, O oh God, that in this very large area of our life, we work every day. We go out to work. We look for work. We're trying, O oh God, to labor before you. We pray that you would provide us with suitable work, suitable to our gifts, and help us, O oh God, that as we work in whatever sphere we have, whether we're working independently, whether we work for another, or we have many people under us, pray that you would help us to be good employees and employers 
that we might work as unto you. That we might be thinking about these things as if we were ministering what we do to you. As if you were one of our slaves or you were one of our masters. Help us to be reminded of this passage and help us to glorify you in these things. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.